The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Starting with something controversial, and you might not agree with me on this, but I believe that the most recent, that the recent uh, Tom Cruise movie, Top Gun Maverick, is one of the greatest, if not the greatest, film ever made. Now, I know that's controversial to say that about any movie, let alone a movie that's come out recently, uh, but that's what I, I, I struggle to, I seriously struggle to think of a better movie. I think it has everything, and it's perfectly balanced, and it's fantastic, and if you disagree with me, that's fine. You, you're just wrong, that's all. <laughs> Did someone say amen to that? <laughs> we don't get many amens here in this church, but we do about Tom Cruise, that's... Okay. Um, I'd like more amens. Uh, Opinions about movies are one of those things that we'll often take a stand on, especially if we find ourselves having to defend ourselves against that, to defend that position that we've taken a stand in. Uh, I I recently experienced, well, not recently, actually, a few years ago experienced this. I was driving home from watching the movie Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi, Easily one of the worst Star Wars movies ever made. I got, I got some momentum on that. There we go. Uh, but the buddy I was driving with, his name is Gareth, good friend of mine, he loved it. And we had the most ridiculous, most significant fight that we've ever had as mates. I've known him for years and years, and we just, the gloves came off and we said things to each other. We, we got personal. We got, we got like, because I took a stand and said, no, that was ridiculous. And he took a stand and said, no, that was fantastic. Now, opinions about movies, that's a fairly innocuous example of what it means to stand firm on something. You might have a strong opinion about movies, about Star Wars, or about Top Gun. It's probably not wise for that to be a hill for us to die on. There are far more important things to stand firm on. And we're going to look today at something that the Apostle Paul urges Christians to stand firm in. Paul uses that phrase, stand firm, on a number of different occasions in the New Testament. And our passage that we're looking at today ends with one of them. He writes to the Philippian church, in this manner, this is chapter 4, verse 1, in this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. The reason why is because a life following Jesus will always include opposition to the faith. If If you've joined us this morning and you're not a Christian, that's probably quite obvious to you, and you might be weighing up the cost of that right now and wondering, is following Jesus even worth it. The reality of following Jesus is that there will be no shortage of reasons to abandon the faith. It could be through suffering, the loss of some significant thing in our lives, even someone significant. It might be doubts that have been raised in your mind, questions that have been left unanswered. It might be the inevitable and quite unmerciful persecution that no doubt resides somewhere in the future for Christians in the West. Or it could be the opposite. Comfort and lifestyle can, can slowly, albeit easily, draw us away from Jesus. It could be that your faith isn't something that you've really had to exercise for a while and following Jesus has kind of begun to, to fade like old paint. 
I've come across many Christians over the past 12 to 18 months who just haven't really had much, if any, kind of meaningful involvement in, in church for quite a while, and as a result of feeling a little bit lost in their faith. If I could be honest with you for a moment, this week I felt flat, both physically, emotionally, but also spiritually. And that flatness can sometimes grow into indifference and even boredom at God. Every single one of us here who is a believer needs to repeatedly hear the urgent appeal in God's word to stand firm in Jesus. Last week, we looked at the beginnings of chapter 3 and we saw how Paul reflected on his own experience of trying to perform for God and how he no longer considered the things on his list of important things that he's done for God as important anymore. He says, I consider them as dung. And if you were here last week, um, I'll just have to say thank you to the person who sent me pictures of them walking their dog that day after church. If you weren't here last week, that won't make any sense to you. If you were, that hopefully will make some sense to you. Um, but we, we make for us, we, we, we come up with these lists, these things that we try to do for God, to try and maybe make ourselves more savable for God, thinking I've got to be a better version of myself and then God will, will save me. Or we might try and make ourselves uh, more saved by God, that we try and add to salvation. And Paul says, no, that, that's, that's ridiculous. Salvation is entirely by God's grace. That's what we looked at last week. And we might have the question, well, well once we're saved then, what, what then do we do? What, is there any point in doing anything? Is God expecting anything from us if, if, there's no, if that doesn't make us more saved? And Paul seems to anticipate that question in the coming verses, and he lays out the kind and the degree of effort and work required in the Christian life to stand firm in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's going to give us a vision of what it means to follow Jesus to the end, to endure, to stand firm in Jesus. And Paul's vision seems to have two lenses here. One of these lenses is, is focused on this life and what we can do, what we should do in this life. The other lens is focused on the life to come and what, how we should be considering the life to come in terms of standing firm in Jesus. <clears throat> now, there isn't really a clear break from last, between last week's passage and this week's passage. It's just an ongoing discourse. Last week in verse 10, Paul said that his goal was to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that he will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. And then today, as we begin in verse 12, he just continues on that train of thought. He says, not that I've already reached the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Jesus Christ. So straight up, Paul is acknowledging that he is still a work in progress. He's not writing as someone who has reached perfection, but as someone who is still going through the sanctifying process of becoming more like Jesus. And this should encourage us. For each one of us, there is, or at least should be, a part of our lives that needs greater levels of sanctification. 
areas of sin that still need to come under the rule of Jesus. But be encouraged. If you have a pulse right now, God's not finished on you yet. If you had just took a breath, there is more of Jesus to know and there is more of you to grow. Our God is not only the author of our faith, he's the perfecter of our faith, says Hebrews 12 too. Paul wrote early in Philippians that he, God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. And listen to how he puts it here. He says, I make every effort to take hold of, of the goal of, of it because I also have been taken hold of by Jesus Christ. One of the most important things that we can ever remember is the order of that sentence. If Paul had said, Jesus has taken hold of me because I have taken hold of him, we would no longer have Christianity. We would no longer have grace. Sure, it's the same ingredients, but it's in the wrong order, and that makes it the opposite to grace. It's Jesus who first takes hold of us, and that is our reason to make every possible effort to take hold of him. We work out our salvation because, he, because salvation has been worked into us by Jesus Christ. Christian, if you've got doubts, if you've been discouraged in your faith lately, if you've been finding that following Jesus is exacting some kind of large cost in your life, don't let your first remedy be to try harder. Let your first remedy be in remembering, recalling the fact that Jesus has done everything to take hold of you. And that's not light language either, the way he says taking hold of. That's not, he's not just reaching over and grabbing our hands. It's not a Christian side hug. He's seizing us. He's grabbing us. He's, it's almost like he's arresting us. Jesus has seized us. He's overpowered us. And he's done that motivated by his unconditional love for us, his amazing grace towards us, and his unending mercy for us. Praise God that Jesus takes hold of us first. If you're a Christian, it's not because you thought it was a really good idea to follow God, and so you applied to become a Christian, you showed God your credentials, he looked at you and said, eh, pretty good, we'll, we'll, we'll let you through for this, and, and, then, and then you've become a Christian because of that. If you're a Christian, it's because God, out of his infinite grace, mercy, and wisdom, decided to come to you and save you from your sins and to write your name into his book of life. God did not leave us on earth, but he came in the person of Jesus Christ to live the life that we could not live and to die the death that we deserved. And then he was raised to new life, making it not only possible, but guaranteed that anyone who puts their trust in Jesus for their salvation will also be resurrected and will step into heaven for eternity with Jesus. If you trust in Jesus... It means that your wretched record of sin and rebellion and failure has been put onto the shoulders of Jesus Christ, credited to Jesus Christ, and he has taken the blame for that. And his perfect record of, of, of righteousness, his record of perfect obedience has been credited to you. And everything that is true of Jesus has become true of you. We are made into sons of, or daughters of God. Our names get put into his will, 
and we get a room in his house for eternity. And it's that fact that underscores and underwrites the command to stand firm in Jesus. Stand firm in Jesus. Jesus has taken hold of us. And so in the next few verses, Paul's now going to unpack what it actually looks like to make every effort to take hold of Jesus. The first action is focused on this life. He says, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Now, now it's hard to know exactly what Paul means by forgetting the past, but it's probably that he's just not allowing his past, whether that's good things that have happened or bad things that have happened, to really alter the ministry and the work that God has placed before him. Paul doesn't let past regrets or even the good old days to set the tone for the ministry ahead, but he instead reaches forward for what is ahead. I try to, uh, as best as I can, uh, maintain a regular pattern of running a few times a week. And at the moment, I'm, I'm managing to run about five kilometers at a time without stopping. Uh, and every time, without doubt, I get to the three and a half kilometer mark and I start to ask questions. Like, why on earth am I doing this? Like, what's even the point of doing this? And I become tempted to just stop and walk the rest of the way home, even just walk for the next 500 meters, and I start to justify it, like, oh, I could just walk a little bit. And, you know, I was running pretty hard back then. I start to, I lose sight of the goal. And Paul's words are helpful here for Christians who have reached that three and a half kilometer mark in their faith. They've come upon some hills and some obstacles, and they're wondering to themselves, what's even the point? Maybe I should just throw in the towel. Why am I still doing this? See, Paul's language of, of reaching forward paints this picture of extreme physical exertion. His legs are pumping. The lactic acid is building up. And every reason to abandon the run of faith is getting louder and louder. If you haven't had days or weeks like this, even months, just wait. You will. How does Paul continue in the faith when he's at that mark where he's tempted to give up? He says he reaches forward to the goal. His eye, he keeps his eyes on the goal. It's the same goal of verse 10 which we looked at last week. That goal for Paul was to fully know Jesus, which means joining with Jesus in his suffering, in his death, and in his resurrection. And the goal here in verse 14, it hasn't changed. It's still to know Jesus, but he phrases it a little bit differently. He calls it a prize, and he characterizes it as a heavenly call. Now, your Bibles might use a different word to heavenly. They might, it might say an upward call, and that's a, a more literal and probably a better translation there. You see, the call to, to follow Jesus, to know Jesus, to follow him and to suffer like him and to die for Jesus is in fact an upward call. There is simply no better invitation to accept and no greater blessing than to serve our Lord Jesus Christ and to follow our Lord Jesus Christ and to suffer with our Lord Jesus Christ and to even die for our Lord Jesus Christ. 
I was extremely encouraged this morning in our prayer meeting on Thursday mornings um, by, by Ruth. She began praying like this, and Ruth, I hope I'm not embarrassing you. She, she said, Lord, there is no greater blessing than to serve you. She's right. That's true. You might think that the blessed life is when your interests are served, but you're wrong. And you need to hear that you're wrong. The blessed life, the life of the upward life is a life of serving Jesus, knowing Jesus and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. That's the good life. Beloved, if you are at the three and a half kilometer mark of your faith and you're tempted to throw in the towel, I urge you, look through the circumstances that you're going through right now and get your eyes on the goal of knowing Jesus Christ which will one day be fully made a reality to you. When Christ returns, when he returns or calls me home, we'll see him, we'll know him. We'll see Jesus face to face in the flesh. And inside of a minute of seeing Jesus, even less than a minute, but we'll immediately be able to, a lifetime of suffering and a lifetime of pain and hardship will be straight away justified inside of a minute. I was seeing Jesus. We'll look at Jesus and we might or might not, I don't know, but we'll consider the life just gone and we'll go, oh yeah, worth it. That's what Jesus is all about. We might be tempted right now. You might be tempted right now to throw in the towel. But God has not finished working on you yet. And more than that, God has not finished working through you yet. Paul said earlier, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And it's a similar sentiment here. To live is to reach forward, to, not to wish that it was all over. Paul's not writing going, oh man, this is horrible. I can't wait till this is all over. He's got his eyes on the patch of road in front of him. To reach forward is to keep your eyes on the goal and to stare at that patch of road in front of you and be resolved that Jesus is better, his ways are better, and despite the obstacles, he is going to sustain you. He is the one who has taken hold of you. And this point, it, might be worth, it is worth pausing and considering the kinds of obstacles that may lay in the path ahead for us. What would have to happen in your life that it would make it really difficult to still be a Christian? What has the potential to sideline your faith? Would it be suffering? The loss of treasured things, treasured people, a treasured lifestyle? Would it be persecution? I had a meeting this week with someone from an organization called Open Doors. You might have heard of it. They, they, they support persecuted Christians around the world, and they raise the profile, particularly in the West, of those persecuted Christians, encouraging the West to pray and support the, our brothers and sisters around the world who are doing it tough. And this guy who I met with, his name's Stephen, um, which is a great name, actually, for representing uh, persecuted people. He said something that, if you don't understand what that means, just go read Acts 7 and 8 and then laugh. Um, he, Stephen said something that really resonated with me. He said, the Western church actually needs to be discipled by the persecuted church. And he's right. Our brothers and sisters around the world 
who are living the realities of suffering for Jesus on a daily basis have a role to play in our faith to help us navigate the incoming tide of persecution. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. There is a cost to following Jesus. And I encourage you to ask, is there a cost that I'm unwilling to pay? And can I encourage you that what we have gained in Christ is better than anything we could ever lose or forfeit? And I know the gravity of those words. That, that is, that the gravity of those words are not lost on me. I don't say that lightly. Because yes, the, follow, the call to, to follow Jesus is a call to share in his sufferings, even in the things that we hold most dear. But it's still an upward call because it's to know Jesus. Gaining Jesus and being found in him is the greatest blessing. I said this last week, having everything but not Jesus is the exact equivalent of having nothing, and having nothing but Jesus is the exact equivalent of having everything. Jesus continues in Matthew 16 saying, Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Knowing Jesus, knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, not just knowing about him or attending church, but actually having a personal relationship with him is the center of Christianity. And if you walk with Jesus long enough, you'll know that that's, that's, that's true. Paul says, therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Now, this isn't a dissenting remark from Paul. He's simply telling them that the more you walk with Jesus, the more God will reveal to you that Jesus is the greatest blessing, the greatest thing we could ever give our life to. Standing firm means to be putting our trust in in Jesus who holds us dear. Paul continues. For Paul, Christian community is crucial in standing firm. He says from verse 17, Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example that you have in us. Now, now Paul's not on an ego trip there. He's not puffing himself up there. He's not promoting himself to them, but rather promoting to them a life of serving serving Jesus like the Christians around us and the Christians before us. And his message is really simple and really clear. Surround yourself with people who are ahead of you on the journey of faith, people that you can learn from and experience the tough lessons from that they have learned over the years. This is why I so firmly believe in and deeply believe in in regular and meaningful church attendance and involvement, in being involved deeply with other Christians. We need the community of faith around us to help us, to guide us, to learn from, for them to be in our lives, and so we could pay careful attention to one another in that way. Here are, here are two ways that we can apply that. Firstly, surround yourself with people who are older than you in the faith. 
They don't have to be older than you in age, but older than you in the faith. And if you're wondering who that is, they're in this room. There are people here in this room who have been following Jesus for years, decades even, and we are blessed to be around them. Find someone who is following Jesus, who has been following Jesus for longer than you. Take them out to coffee. Ask them, how have they persisted in their faith? What has helped them to stand firm? And let them speak honestly into your life. I experienced this quite deeply a few months ago. Again, it was on one of our Thursday morning prayer meetings, and it was just Noel and I. And on this day, I was, I was upset, I think, and I was tired, and I was praying something. And I think the way that I was praying was I was in a bit of a pit. Self-pity, I was lamenting things, and I just wasn't doing real well. And Noel interrupted my prayers with one of his Not mid-sentence, but mid-prayer. And he just started praying on my behalf the way I should have been praying. He just started praying. Just like, I can't remember exactly what it was, but he was something like, Lord, would you just help Jimmy to realize? And then continued. And this man loves me in, in deep ways. And I look up to him and I'm so blessed by him. I needed my older brother to clip me over the ears and say, stop praying like that, you dummy. The second way we can apply this is to be one of these people yourself. Grow in the faith. If you're a Christian, you have a responsibility to the body of Christ to grow in your faith. You have a duty to the body of Christ to grow in your faith to follow the example of Jesus and be that person for someone else in the body. You need to understand that the tough lessons that you have learned along the way, they weren't just for you, they were for someone else, a younger believer, someone who can benefit from your wisdom. Again, I had another experience of this recently. It was last Sunday in our life group, and I won't share you any of the details, but one brother who had been through a really tough time, I got to watch him share and help and encourage another brother who was going through a similar tough time at that, at that time and pray for him and love him and encourage him. And it is a privilege to be part of the community of faith, to have people around us where we can obey this command to pay careful attention to those who walk according to the example of Jesus. That is the command that we have in Scripture, and we need to be around the community of faith to do this. There are, however, some that are not worth following. Paul says, For I have often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame, and they are focused on earthly things. Now, it appears that Paul's tears there are because these people who he's talking about once followed Jesus but have now abandoned the faith. They are people who have stopped standing firm. And there's no shortage of examples of this in our day. Probably somebody you know or you know of. And it's upsetting. It really is. You can understand Paul's tears. 
And yes, we should continue to pursue that person with the gospel of Jesus Christ, calling them back to faith. But Paul, nevertheless, here issues a warning about following in their path. And he gives four brief and yet stark descriptions of these people. He says their end is destruction. It's tempting to to sometimes throw in the towel of faith, especially when the path away from Jesus Christ seems to be littered with ease and comfort. But make no mistake, the path away from Jesus is the path towards destruction. Someone who has made themselves an enemy of Jesus can only expect destruction at the end of their path. Secondly, he says their God is their stomach. And the stomach is a a helpful way to think about what motivates us. Because the thing about a stomach is that it doesn't matter how full we get, it won't be long until we're hungry again. And then when when we are hungry, we suddenly want food and we want it now. And we live in in a world of the immediate, of the instant and the perishing. But the the path of following Jesus is a lifelong journey of being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ by one degree of glory to another. If you're in a hurry, Jesus is going to frustrate you. He says their glory is in their shame. In other words, they now celebrate the kinds of things that actually only brings them shame. I was reminded about that in Matthew 6 where Jesus says, If the light in you is actually darkness, how great is the darkness? These people assume themselves to be clever and free, but they are blinded to the reality of their own blindness. He says they are focused on earthly things, and this basically sums it up. Their motto is, you only live once. This is all that there is, and so we should make the most of it. But for the Christian, we know that this life and this earth is not all that there is. And this is where Paul shifts his lens and draws draws our attention now to heaven. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. There's something about getting to the end of a 5K run where my feet hit the driveway and it doesn't really matter how hard the the run was. When my feet hit that driveway and I press stop on the watch, all those difficulties, well, the most of them seem to melt away. And Paul is saying, there is a finish line to this race and it's going to come at the return of Jesus where he will finalize God's redemptive plan and we will step into heaven forever. And heaven for the Christian is not a, a future, not just a future reality. Heaven is where our citizenship is right now. That's where we belong. Now, he, he, God has us here on earth. I'm not saying that we should only think about heaven at all. We've, we've just been talking about the, the lens focused on this life, how we stand firm in this life. But Paul's saying, hey, keep an eye on heaven to come. That's where you're a citizen. If you feel like a bit of an outsider in this world, if you find that, that holding to Christ and holding to particularly certain ethical or moral positions that, that honor Jesus Christ and that honor our Lord, that they, they start to go against the grain of, of what, our culture, what our culture prizes, what our, what our society honors, we're going to start feeling that persecution. We're going to start feeling like this, that we don't really feel like at home anymore. 
And that's because that's true. Our citizenship is in heaven. We must always have one eye on the end of the race, knowing that what we are called to do here in this life is not in vain, but will result in the brightest future imaginable. What makes heaven so bright? What makes heaven so wonderful? You might have it in your minds that it's, uh, we sit on some clouds, we get some little wings, we play a harp, if you're going to believe the, the popular cartoons of our day, but Paul doesn't paint that picture at all. He, he actually gives us two things. He says, the, the first of this is that Jesus will be there. That's, that's the best thing about heaven. He says, we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to bring us to heaven to be with him, and we'll get to see him. We'll get to be with him. He said in John 14, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, and I love this, if it were not the case that there was many rooms, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That's the best. That where Jesus is, he's going to come back, he's going to get us, and he's going to take us into the new heavens and new earth. The first best thing about heaven is that Jesus is going to be there and we'll get to be with him and see him and enjoy him. We're not going to get bored, we're not going to get tired because Jesus is there. This is why knowing Jesus is all that matters to Paul. And the call to know Jesus, even though it includes knowing his suffering and death, is still an upward heavenly call. And that goal will be realized when we fully get to see him who we have we eagerly been awaiting for, our Lord and Savior. Jesus is our Lord and our Savior. He is the one who paid the penalty for our sin, and he is the Lord over our lives. He doesn't just come to us as our Savior. He comes to us as our Lord, and he makes a claim on our life. It's like he plants a flag in our hearts and he declares over us, mine. The command to stand firm in Jesus is not just friendly, helpful advice from Paul. It is a command from our Lord. Stand firm in him. The second wonderful thing about heaven, Paul says, is that Jesus will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. Our bodies will be made new and perfect. All physical illness, all mental illness, all infection, all disease, all pain, all anger, all regret, all anxiety... All arthritis, all toothaches, all cold sores will disappear and we will be transformed into dazzling created beings, that the, the, the dazzling created beings that we were meant to be, no longer under the curse of sin, but in the perfect image of Jesus Christ. Heaven is great because we don't just get to be with Jesus, we'll get to be just like Jesus. How do we know this is true? Because the same power that enables Jesus to subject everything to himself is the seal, the guarantee on that for us. Jesus is King. Jesus is Lord. All things in heaven and on earth 
in the cosmos, everywhere, are subject to Jesus Christ. And that is our guarantee for the new heavens and the new earth. Heaven is real. It's better than we could ever imagine. And we're headed there if our faith is in Jesus Christ. We've got two more weeks in Philippians. And we've got these wonderful guest preachers coming to open up chapter 4 for us. Let's finish this morning with these wonderful verses in chapter 4, verse 1. It's a joy to read the last verse of our passage to you today. And we're just going to read it and then pray. As we read these words, look at the dear love that Paul has for his brothers and sisters. Look at the joy that he has in them and the way that they are like a crown to him that he wears with joy. Consider Philippians chapter 4, verse 1 as words between old friends. He says, So then, my dearly loved and longed-for brothers and sisters, my joy and, joy and my crown, in this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.